Good morning, church family. Pray that you are all well. As today, after a brief two-week hiatus, we'll be jumping back into the Gospel of Mark, and we'll be looking specifically today at Mark chapter 14, verses 10 through 21, or when, a, or when one of Jesus' disciples goes to the chief priest in order to betray Jesus Christ to them, and when Jesus Christ then makes known to his disciples during the Passover meal that one of them would indeed betray him. However, before we get to that this morning, I do want to thank Matt Furman for bringing the word last week from Philippians chapter 2. I thought his exposition on the suffering and on the triumph of Jesus Christ was both humbling and profound. So thank you, Matt, for your labor last week in preparing and for bringing to us the word. Nevertheless, as for today, again, we will be in Mark chapter 14, verses 10 through 21. And what I want you all to keep in mind here, church, is that previously in Mark chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, which time frame-wise was the Wednesday of Passion Week, that the chief priest and the scribes were seeking at that time how to arrest Jesus Christ by stealth and to kill him. But that they had seemingly decided, as we see in verse 2, to wait until after the Passover feast was over in order to do so. Since the last thing the chief priest and the scribes apparently wanted was to cause any type of uproar or uprising or riot in Jerusalem during the Passover feast, when approximately 300,000 people would make their way to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, and the population at that time in Jerusalem church would just absolutely explode. However, sandwiched in between that scene in verses 1 and 2, where the chief priest and the scribes were seeking how to arrest and to kill Jesus Christ. And as we will see today in verses 10 and 11, their chance or their opportunity to be able to do so due to Judas going to them in order to betray Jesus Christ to them is a flashback scene of sorts, which took place six days before the Passover feast began. And it's a scene concerning a woman by the name of Mary, who, as we see in verse 3, came up to Jesus Christ while he was at the house of Simon the leper with a flask of ointment of pure nard, and who then broke that alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard and poured it over Jesus' head, all as a way to love and to adore and to showcase her devotion to Jesus Christ. To which Judas then, and seemingly some of Jesus' other disciples, as we see in the other gospel accounts, for they then did not applaud her for doing this, or praise her for doing this, or compliment her, commend her, laud her, or support her for doing this, but instead they, for they wanted to know why on earth she would waste this precious and expensive and valuable perfume on Jesus Christ, only to then in anger, verse 5, scold her for doing this. To which Jesus Christ then says to her in verse 6, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. And then in verse 8, that she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. 
and John Mark here, church, for he seemingly sandwiches this account of Mary in between these two aforementioned texts about the chief priest in verses 1 and 2 and in verses 10 and 11 in order to showcase to his readers here the sacrificial love and devotion that this woman named Mary had for Jesus Christ compared to the downright animosity and hatred that the chief priest possessed for Jesus Christ. Which takes us now to our thesis statement this morning, church, or to the main theme of our sermon this morning, which is this. Simply because someone knows all the stories about Jesus Christ and has heard all the teachings of Jesus Christ, for that does not mean that they actually belong to Jesus Christ. Again, our thesis statement this morning is this. Simply because someone knows all the stories about Jesus Christ and has heard all the teachings of Jesus Christ, for that does not mean that they actually belong to Jesus Christ. And thus, at this time, church, let's open our Bibles up this morning to Mark chapter 14, verses 10 through 21. And if you are joining us today and do not have or do not own a Bible, then please feel free to grab and even to keep one of our church Bibles, which are all located in the chairs in front of you as our gift to you this morning. Because trust me, we want you to have and to be reading your very own copy of the Word of God which you can start doing today, right here, right now, by turning that brand new Bible of yours to page 850, and by joining us as we as a church family hear the Word of God together this morning. For again, we will be in Mark chapter 14 this morning, church, and we'll be looking specifically at verses 10 through 21, where John Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes... Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, "'Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover?' And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. 
it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, humble our hearts this morning as we approach this text. Lord, there is so much that we can glean and apply and see from this text. Let us not become haughty as we approach the text, but again, humble us, Lord, I pray. Let us be willing to inspect our own lives this morning, to not follow in the ways of Judas and to willingly entertain any sins in our lives. Father, let us put our complete trust in you this morning, Father. Know that you are sovereign over every detail and every aspect of our lives. And Father, let us not lean on our spiritual privilege, if you will. The fact that our parents might have been Christians, the fact that they took us to Sunday school, or let us rely on nothing else for our salvation, other than our faith in Jesus Christ. For we have only been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And it does not matter how many times we have heard the stories about Jesus Christ or have heard the teachings about Jesus Christ, for only those who belong to Jesus Christ are those who have placed their faith in him. Lord, I pray that you let us cling to these truths this morning. Father, help my lisping and stammering tongue this morning as well, I pray. Lord, let it be what I share with these dear ones this morning, be glorifying to you and edifying to them as a dear congregation. Help me, Lord, I pray, and I pray that this entire service this morning be a sacrifice to you, Father, that glorifies you and no one else. In Jesus' name, amen. Our first of two points this morning, church, is this. Point number one, Christian, never become comfy with any type of sin in your life, but instead always seek to put your sin to death. Christian, never become comfy with any type of sin in your life, but instead always seek to put your sin to death. Verses 10 and 11. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. So as previously mentioned back in Mark chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, the chief priest and the scribes, a.k.a. members of the Sanhedrin, or members of the Jewish high court, For they were seeking at that time how to arrest Jesus Christ by stealth and to kill Jesus Christ. However, again being that some 300,000 people came to Jerusalem for the Passover feast and that the population in Jerusalem at that time would just absolutely explode, the chief priest and the scribes apparently then decided that they did not want to run the risk of arresting this ever-popular Jesus Christ in public during the Passover feast, since they did not want there to be any kind of riot or uprising or uproar breaking out. 
but instead that they would just wait until after the Passover feast was over and until all the crowds and crowds and crowds of people just went home before they would finally then seek to arrest this ever-popular Jesus Christ. That is, until church. As we see here in verse 10, Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, a.k.a. one of Jesus' twelve apostles, went to the chief priest in order to betray Jesus Christ to them, and that although the chief priests were apparently content to just wait until after the Passover feast was over to to seek to arrest and to kill Jesus Christ, for that all changes here, church, when Judas, who was appointed by Jesus Christ, mind you, as one of the twelve, and who had seen and heard Jesus Christ preach and teach and offer parables and answer questions and heal the sick, walk on water, calm the storm, feed the 5,000, raise Lazarus up from the dead, and even foretell of his own death and resurrection on three different occasions. For that all changes here, church, when Judas Iscariot takes the initiative and goes to the chief priest in order, verse 10, to betray Jesus Christ to them. Or as Luke chapter 22 puts it, Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. And he went away and conferred with the chief priest and officers how he might betray him to them. And make no mistake about it, for when the chief priest heard this, verse 11, for they were glad and delighted and rejoiced and promised to give Judas money, or as we see in Matthew 26, they paid him 30 pieces of silver. To which Judas Iscariot then, verse 11, sought an opportunity to betray Jesus Christ. And that we have a scene here, church, where one of Jesus' 12 apostles a man by the name of Judas Iscariot, who has been with Jesus Christ for approximately three years at this point, and who has seen and heard and witnessed personally and directly and profoundly God in the flesh living and dwelling in his very midst, for he has decided at this time to take the initiative and to go to the chief priest in order to betray Jesus Christ to them. And in essence, as numerous commentators point out here, help them arrange the perfect time to arrest Jesus Christ so that it didn't cause any type of uprising or stir, which must have caused then the chief priests then, church, to change their minds about waiting until after the Passover feast was over in order to seek to arrest and to kill Jesus Christ. To which Judas Iscariot then, again, for 30 pieces of silver, which was about a month's worth of wages, sought an opportunity or an opportune and convenient time to betray and to hand over Jesus Christ to them. And thus, as one scholar puts it, for as we see in John chapter 12, verse 6, Judas was a lover of money and who was willing to steal funds intended to help the poor in order to enrich himself. But by entertaining such idolatry, Judas made his heart hard, hard enough to betray God incarnate into the hands of wicked men. And thus Judas is an example then of how dangerous it is to entertain sin. Therefore, as Christians, we must repent of our sins and resist the devil 
Since as we refuse to entertain our sinful desires, we are built up then in holiness and are kept by the grace of God from great wickedness as well. Therefore, applicably speaking here, church, for lovingly then let me encourage each and every one of you here today to flee from the temptation to entertain any kind of sin in your life and to resist the urge to delight in any sin, to take pleasure in any sin, to find joy in any sin, and even to coddle, to love, and to be pleased with any kind of your sin as well. Because whether the sin is jealousy or bitterness, grumbling or pride, hypocrisy or greed, judging or lying, reviling or quarreling, slandering or swindling, malice or envy, idolatry, drunkenness, sexual immorality, or strife, for we have been called, Christian, to not follow the lead of Judas Iscariot here and to entertain any of those sins in our lives, but instead we have been called to repent of those sins, to flee from those sins, to mortify, resist, go to war with, and to seek to kill any of those sins, all so that those sins don't grow in our lives, hinder our Christian walk, and cause us to live in a way that is not pleasing to our God. Therefore, in all honesty, evaluate your life this morning, Christian, in order to see if there are any kinds of sins that you are being friendly with at this time, or holding fast to at this time, or enjoying, delighting, and loving, and or that are pleasing to you at this time, and realize that that sin of yours should not be coddled at this time, but that instead that it should be put down, gone to war with, repented of, killed, mortified, and destroyed, since that sin of yours, Christian, only wants to do you harm. Therefore, if you see a pattern of grumbling in your life, repent of it. A pattern of talking down to others in your life, seek forgiveness for it. Or a pattern of lusting, coveting, lying, or any other sins for that matter in your life, then by the grace of God, go to war against it, since the way of the Christian life, again, is not to follow the lead of Judas Iscariot here and to entertain any sins in your life, Christian, but instead the way of the Christian life is to repent of your sins, to turn from your sins, and to seek to mortify each and every one of your sins, all while knowing full well that if you repent of your sins, that your God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Therefore, by the grace of God, Christian, repent and go to war against each and every one of your sins, since that is day by day the way, the calling, and the pattern of the true Christian life. Which brings us to point number two. God is sovereign, in control of, and authoritative over all. God is sovereign, in control of, and authoritative over all. Verses 12 through 21. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city 
and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city, and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So as we see here in verse 12, that on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, that being on the Thursday of Passion Week, that Jesus' disciples, that they said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? The Passover being the meal that celebrated when the people of Israel's firstborn were spared or passed over, if you will, due to the blood of the slaughtered Passover lamb which was put on the sides and on the tops of the door frames of their houses, as opposed to the Egyptians who had their firstborn, Exodus chapter 12, all struck down. And thus being that this aforementioned Passover meal had to be eaten in Jerusalem, according to Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 5 through 8, and furthermore being that Jesus and his disciples were all likely located in Bethany at this time. For Jesus Christ then, verse 13, sent two of his disciples, those two being Peter and John, as we see in Luke chapter 22, And he said to them in verses 14 through 16, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. Now, whether Jesus Christ had prearranged these plans in person or just supernaturally foreknew what was about to take place, for we do not know for sure. But what we do know for sure, church, is that when Peter and John set out and do go into the city, verse 16, they found it just as Jesus had told them. And they prepared the Passover, which included getting the lamb and the wine, and the bitter herbs, and the unleavened bread, and the sauce all ready to go for the meal. And consequently then, following all of this, Peter and John likely just went back to Bethany, only for Jesus Christ then, verse 17, when it was evening, to go to Jerusalem with the twelve in order to eat the Passover meal. Nevertheless, as they were reclining at table and eating, which was the common position for eating a meal like this during that time. For Jesus Christ then says in verse 18, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. 
Jesus Christ seemingly recalling or echoing Psalm 41.9 here, which reads, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Which was a psalm of David, church, that as Daniel Lakin notes, Jesus Christ clearly applies to this moment. To which Jesus' disciples then, verse 19, began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, Is it I? And that they were saddened by this church and distressed by this church and grieved and hurt and upset and dismayed by this church to the point that they were left asking Jesus Christ, as the NIV puts it, Surely you don't mean me. To which Jesus Christ then replies back to them in verse 20 by saying, that it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Or as the new King James puts, it is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. In essence, as one commentator puts it, for Jesus Christ is dramatically here reinforcing his point from verse 18, that being that the betrayer is one in closest relationship with him. And not only that, but as we go on to see in verse 21... For Jesus Christ also then says, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And thus make no mistake about it, church, for none of this betrayal thing by Judas Iscariot has caught our God off guard here, church, or taken our God by surprise here, church, or left our God unprepared, unaware, vulnerable, or saying, oh no, what do I do now here, church, but that instead this betrayal of Jesus Christ was all part of our God's divine and sovereign plan for Jesus Christ here. And although there's a wide range of speculation as to what exactly Jesus Christ was referring to, when he said in verse 21 that the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, I tend to humbly side with the scholarship that believes, as Eckerd Schnebel writes, that if betrayal is in view here, then again it could refer to Psalm 41.9, which again reads that even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Nevertheless, although it was part of God's divine plan for Judas Iscariot to ultimately betray Jesus Christ here, for Jesus Christ still says in verse 21, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born, and that Judas Iscariot would still be held accountable for and would still be responsible for this wicked and heinous act of betrayal. Or as the late R.C. Sproul writes, in these events we see the intersection between the secret counsel of God and the schemes of human will. In God's providence, what we call the mystery of concurrence occurred. Two streams came together, the sovereign will of God and the earthly will of human flesh. It is not as though God in his sovereignty coerced Judas to carry out the evil act of betraying Jesus. Rather, the sovereign God worked his will in and through the choices of his creatures. Judas did exactly what Judas wanted to do, but God brought good out of evil. In fact, he brought redemption out of treachery. 
Dr. Paul Tan Church, where he shared this story about a man by the name of Samuel L. Brengel, who was a preacher in the Salvation Army during the late part of the 19th and the early part of the 20th century, who wrote a little book called Helps to Holiness. However, it was originally written as a series of articles and was penned during the period of recovery and recuperation after a hooligan one day threw and hit Brangle in the head with a paving brick. And yet, as the Brangles used to say, if there had been no little brick, there would have been no little book. And thus, Miss Brangle then kept the brick that hit Mr. Brangle in the head and painted on it, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God, he meant it for good. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. And thus, brother Christian, sister Christian, find peace and comfort and assurance and strength this morning over the fact that your God works all things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians chapter 1, and that, he's, and that he is in the heavens, and that he does all that he pleases, Psalm chapter 115, and that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, Romans chapter 8, and that not only was your God, Christian, sovereign and in control of and authoritative over every step of Jesus's betrayal and every part of Jesus's suffering and over every single detail of Jesus's crucifixion, death, and resurrection, but that your God is also Christian, sovereign, in control of, and authoritative over every single detail and aspect of your life as well. And thus, because of that, allow yourself then, Christian, no matter what you might be going through, at this time to find absolute peace and comfort and joy and assurance in the divine sovereignty of your most holy God himself. Because no matter what mankind does, for nothing, and I mean nothing, can ever stop or impede or obstruct any of our God's sovereign plans, since even what mankind means for evil, for our sovereign God, somehow and some way can providentially use it for our good and for his eternal glory. And thus, as we begin to close this morning, I'd like to do so with the non-Christian who was here first, and to share with you at this time, non-Christian, that although this Jesus Christ would indeed be betrayed by one of his disciples, and be delivered into the hands of men, and be killed. For that was not the end of this Jesus Christ. And I say that because this Jesus Christ, he came into the world non-Christian as truly God and as truly man in order to initially live for us the life that we could never live. And that the life that Jesus Christ lived while he lived and dwelt among us was a life that was sinless and holy and righteous and good and free from any kind of evil or wickedness, transgression or sin. And thus, because of that, he, Jesus Christ, then fulfilled the law of God in its entirety, perfectly and completely and without any kind of offense or for the very children of God. However, keeping the law of God 
or for the very children of God, for that was not all that this sinless Son of God, Jesus Christ, accomplished while he lived and dwelt among us. And I say that because Jesus Christ also, then non-Christian, paid the price for our sins that we as sinners could not pay by taking our sins upon himself and by willingly then being crucified and pierced, killed and crushed on a cross at Calvary in our place and as our very substitute, even though he himself never sinned, which satisfied then non-Christian the justice of our holy God and appeased then non-Christian the wrath of our holy God all toward his sinful children as well. And thus because of that, three days later then this sinless Son of God, Jesus Christ. For he didn't remain dead or buried in some grave, but instead three days later, he, Jesus Christ, he rose from the grave and he defeated sin and destroyed eternal death once and for all and now offers eternal life to all who place their trust in him. Thus, let today be the day, non-Christian, that you turn from your sin. For let today be the day that you repent of your sin and you place your trust in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone as the only one who can forgive you of your sins, as the only one who paid the price for your sins, who died for your sins, and can clothe you then in his righteousness, in his perfect life, and reconcile you back to God forever. For let today be the day, non-Christian, that you repent of your sins and you place your faith in Jesus Christ, and today will be the day that you will be forgiven of your sins and given the gift non-Christian of eternal life. And to the Christian who was here today, for as we close this morning, brother Christian, sister Christian, I'd like to do so by reminding you all at this time and emphasizing to you all at this time and stressing to you all at this time that it was not your church attendance, Christian, in and of itself, that made you a new creation in Jesus Christ and ultimately saved you from your sins. Nor even was it the catechism questions that you memorized, the Christian college that you went to, the Bible studies that you attended, or the fact that your parents, your grandparents, or even your great-grandparents were all Christians as well. For none of that, Christian, in and of itself, is the reason why you are a new creation in Jesus Christ and have been saved from your very sins. And the reason why I am harping on that point for a second here this morning, church, is because, as Mark Strauss points out, For although Judas, one of Jesus' twelve apostles, had all the advantages of being part of Jesus' inner circle, he still betrayed Jesus Christ. And thus spiritual privilege in and of itself is not enough to save anyone, since true discipleship requires a response of faith in Jesus Christ. H.I. Ironside Church, he shared that Bishop John Taylor Smith A former chaplain in the British Army was once preaching in a large cathedral from John 3, verse 7, which reads that you must be born again. And thus, in order to really drive his point home, he said, My dear people, do not substitute anything for the new birth 
Because although you may be a member of a church, church membership is not new birth. And unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then pointing to one of the clergymen, he said, For you might even be a clergyman, like my friend here, and not be born again. And unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then he even pointed directly to the archdeacon who was in attendance. And he said, you might even be the archdeacon, my friend here, and not be born again. And unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. To which a couple days later, he received a letter from the archdeacon, which said, my dear bishop, you have found me out. I have been a clergyman for over 30 years, but I have never known anything of the joy that you Christians speak of. I could never understand it. Mine has been hard, legal service, and I did not know what was the matter with me. But when you pointed directly at me and said you might even be the archdeacon and not be born again, I realized in a moment what the trouble was. I had never known anything of the new birth. He went on to say that he was wretched and miserable and had been unable to sleep at night and begged for a conference if the bishop could spare the time to talk. And thus the next day they both got together over the word of God. And after some hours they were both on their knees. And the archdeacon, taking his place before God as a poor and lost sinner, placed his trust in Jesus Christ. And thus your daddy, he might have been a preacher. And your mother, she might have taken you to Sunday school each and every week. And you might even be a member of this church and serve in this church and receive the family Bible, went to Christian college, saw Billy Graham preach once, went on a missions trip, was catechized as a child and even grew up in a Christian home and as wonderful and as admirable and as valuable as all those things are for none of them, church, in and of themselves are enough to get anyone saved from their sins, forgiven of their sins, born again and make them members of the kingdom of God forever since salvation only comes by grace alone through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Or as Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 puts it, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, but it is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. And that the gift of salvation always has, is, and will continue to be the work of our God and our God alone. Therefore, brother Christian, sister Christian, Cling to that truth. Trust in that truth. Rest in that truth. Find assurance in that truth. And don't let anyone ever, ever, ever cause you to stop believing in that truth. Because no matter who you are, where you are from, what you did, and no matter how many times you've been to church or not, for there is only one way and one way alone to be saved, redeemed, forgiven, and cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, and that is by grace alone, through faith alone in the king of the kingdom of God, Jesus Christ alone. Thus it is my prayer that we as a church body, 
never, ever, ever, even for a millisecond, begin to rest in, cling to, or hope in anything other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as, as those who have been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, for let us also then, Father, willingly and boldly and with great consistency, flee from all the temptations of sin around us and never seek to entertain any of them, but to instead hate our sin, despise our sin, abhor our sin, and to ultimately desire to put to death each and every one of our sins, all while also knowing that even when people do sin against us, that you, God, are still in control, and that you are still providentially working in and through all that takes place around us. And thus, because of all that, Lord, for let us rest in you as the God who has given us salvation. Let us be strengthened by you as we fight against the desires of the flesh, and let us trust in you to providentially work all things together for our good and for your eternal glory, since you, Father, are God, you are good, and you are ultimately sovereign over all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, let us cling to the gospel of Jesus Christ like never before this morning. Lord, help us to hate our sins, to despise our sins, to abhor our sins, the same sins that nailed your son, Jesus Christ, to that cross. Let us dare not be willing to entertain our sins or to coddle them out this time, but to consistently be willing to put them to death the same grace that was given so that we could have faith in Jesus Christ, we are being empowered by now to walk in good works, to flee from the works of the devil, and to grow in Christ-likeness as we become more like Jesus Christ. Thus, if we are holding fast to sin this morning, Father, convict us. Let us repent of that sin, and by your grace, keep us from wickedness. Father, let us trust in you to do this good work since you work all things together for the good of your people and for your glory. And we know that we are your people because by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, we have been cleansed, saved, and forgiven by the blood of the Lamb. Let us cling to that truth above all else, resting not in any of our works, any of the spiritual privileges we might have been given in the past, but let us rest in Jesus Christ and Christ alone, the founder and perfecter of our faith now and forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.